Thanks, Dave. <clears throat> I'm really keen to get in Jonah, so let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for speaking to us. We ask that you would speak to us tonight, that you'd be with us by your spirit and through your word, and that you'd change our hearts. We pray this in your son's name. Amen? Amen. Well, tonight we continue our series in um, the same series we've been in, Out of the Storm, but we finished the book of Job last week and we start a new book, Book of Jonah, this week. And Jonah is one of the most famous books in our Bible, and I'll get you to tell me why. Why is it? Fish. Fish. Good, shorthand for big fish. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's famous because Jonah, this man, was swallowed by this big fish, a massive fish. Uh, it actually has very little to do with the story, three verses in the whole book, three verses. Uh, it's a cameo appearance, really. And did you know there's a cameo appearance in The Lord of the Rings, the trilogy? Uh, Peter Jackson, the director, he appears as Albert Dreary, a man eating a carrot in the village of Bree. He had a character name and everything. Um, remembering the book of Jonah for this cameo role of the fish would be like remembering J.R. Tolkien's epic, The Lord of the Rings, by a man eating a carrot in a pub. Right? That's not the point. But let's pause straight up. We'll stop here and we'll address the massive fish in the room because I know it's here. Um, yep, cheers. Todd, that's my name. How can we possibly believe the Bible, God's Word, we just heard so much about. How do we possibly believe this when there's this historical event like this in the Bible? It's unbelievable. And so here's my quick logic on it for what it's worth. Um, this story seems very incredibly unlikely, doesn't it? Can we agree on that? Yes? Crazy. A man being swallowed by a giant fish and surviving for three days and three nights in that fish. It's crazy. If you can't agree with the fact that it's crazy, you're crazy, right? But, so, uh, actually so, it'd have to take some sort of a miracle for this to happen, right? Agreed? Agreed, great. If there is a God who created the heavens and the earth and puts breath in our lungs every breath, is this God capable of pulling off a miracle like this? Yep, he is. If you can't agree with that, you're nuts, Right? And so there it is, it's put to bed. There are far bigger miracles in God's word than this one and far more at stake if they did or didn't happen. Now for the record, I think there's more reason to believe it did um, and I'm happy to chat about that after than it, than it didn't. Um, but don't sweat the small stuff. A bit more on the book of Jonah. Jonah is a minor prophet. Um, it just means that he's smaller than the other prophets, harder to find in your Bible. The humble people go to the contents page, the less humble people just flick through back and forward until they get it. Um, and it's unique among the minor prophets because usually a prophetic book is filled with words of the prophet, the, the, the words that the prophet speaks, the words from God that he will speak. Um, but this is a book filled with words about a prophet, about Jonah. And usually when a prophet speaks, they speak God's word and they speak judgment to someone to cut them to the heart that they might turn back to God in repentance. But when the words about Jonah are read, we get cut in a different kind of way because Jonah gets cut. Jonah, God's prophet though he is, he is not the good guy in the story. And so when we read about this foolish, angsty, tantrum-throwing man-child, that's what's coming, exciting, there are moments when unfortunately it really just it looks like we're looking into a mirror. 
Because Jonah is indicative of humanity, of us, his fallenness. The book of Jonah uh, contrasts his character with God's character. And so we are cut to the heart because we, along with Jonah, fall short of God's character. And Jonah, the book, is ultimately a book about God. God is the protagonist. He's the main character. He is active, 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 doing things, saying things. And everyone else reacts. And each act and each word of God reveals something of our God. And so here's the question. What, what kind of God do we serve here? The book of Jonah will show us. And we'll be drawn into the glory of who our God is. He's, he's glorious. He's compassionate. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in love. He is a God who shows mercy toward even the most undeserving. So let's dive into chapter 1, verse 1. Let's go. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Now what's significant about Nineveh? The verse tells us that it's, it's great, it's large, it's a big city, and it's wicked. But there's more to know that will help us understand the rest of the book and, and what Jonah comes to do. Because Jonah is a prophet from Israel, uh, the northern part of a once unified nation of God. And Nineveh would have been Israel's most hated city in the entire world. Because there was a superpower nation in those days, in Jonah's days, um, called Assyria. And Nineveh was the capital city of that terrible nation, Assyria. Imagine Israel as a nation is like the Ukraine, and Russia is like Assyria, this huge superpower of the day, just doing what they want, taking your land, coming into your border, declaring war. And Nineveh is Moscow, the capital of Russia. Now, if you could imagine the hatred of a Ukrainian person towards Moscow, you'd be a little bit of the way towards how Jonah would have felt about Assyria and about Nineveh. He would have spat on the ground at the mention of the name. And so back to the story, Jonah is told to go to this city and to preach against it. What better mission to receive, right? Must be licking his lips. Hey, Ukrainian, walk into Moscow, tell them that God's coming and he's coming to destroy them. So verse 3, have a look. Yeah. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. That's, that's a stark contrast. A bit of a shell shock moment for it. I, th- I thought this was God's prophet. I thought he was meant to do what God does. How tragic then that he who is given God's word to call other people to obey, he doesn't even obey it himself. In the ESV, God says, Arise, go to Nineveh. And Jonah obeys in part. He arises, he gets up, but he gets up and goes and flees from God and to run away from the mission that he's called to. To Tarshish, right? Literally the edge of the world, the other direction. I made you a quick map. All right? No, no, I got a better one. Yeah, cool. Um, But that's basically the point, right? Go this way. No, I'm going to go 4,000 kilometers that way. And think about it. The very edge of the water there, just just the mouth south of Spain, the edge of the ancient world, nothing beyond that but sea. He goes as far away as he possibly can. But that's not where the story ends because the Lord pursues his prophet. God sends a great storm which threatens to tear the ship apart. We can take that down now. Um, Verse 5, we see the sailors in panic mode. Uh, We're told that they're afraid. 
which tells you something about the nature of this storm. Experienced sailors brought to their knees, crying out to their God, doing everything they can to survive. But where's Jonah? Have a look, halfway through verse 5. He's asleep, below deck. Yet another stark and unexpected contrast, this time to the sailors and their behaviour. And notice where God is. We saw it there in verse 2. We just skimmed over at the end of it. He's up. The wickedness has come up before me. God is up. But Jonah's journey is down and away. Verse 3, he goes down to Joppa. Verse 5, he goes below deck where he lay down and fall into a deep sleep. This is a man who is far from where God is. He is seeking to get as far away from God as he can. The sailors are at least up on the deck, exposed to the elements, crying out to their gods. But Jonah is down, below deck, deep asleep, hiding from the pursuit of his God. Keep that image in your mind because we'll come back to it. Verse 6, the captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Ironically and tragically, Uh, This pagan sailor becomes God's prophet to God's prophet. He speaks God's words to him from verse 2, get up, to stir him to action. But at this point, Jonah doesn't care. He's got no concern for himself, for the lives of the sailors or the ship. Such is the stubbornness of this man Jonah, God's prophet. Now let's pause there for a minute, take a moment to notice the worldview of these sailors. It's fear-filled chaos. They live in a fear-filled, chaotic world. They're pagan sailors. They're not like Israelites who believe in one God. They, live, they believe in a plurality... Can't get it. They are polytheistic, okay, as opposed to monotheistic, which is what Jews are, right? They believe that there's a God who caused this storm. They got that bit right. But look at the hopelessness of what their religion offers. I don't know if you noticed it. They're running around like a headless chook. We've been calling on our gods, the god of the wind, the god of the rain, the god of the storm, the god of the sea. Has anyone checked off the god of lightning? Just nothing's working. Go fetch Jonah. Get him to do the same. Call on your god. Maybe, he says, maybe he will take notice of us. Clutching at straws, desperately stabbing in the dark, just hoping that something will bring about some kind of difference. What a terrifying world to live in. Chaos. There's this multitude of gods that exist just to make your life hard. The best you can hope for is that you just go unnoticed, you fly under the radar for your whole life. So we'll come back to these sailors in a moment, but notice verse 7, there's a change of scene. Jonah um, is now on deck with the sailors. He obeyed the captain in part, he got up, he got up, but he didn't on his God. He's running away from him. Jonah has no God in this moment. Tragic. Verse 7, then the sailors said to each other, come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, which is probably just throwing dice, and the lot falls on Jonah. (laughs) What are the chances? No, actually. Did you know there's no such thing as chance? We don't believe in chance. If you're a Christian, you don't believe in chance. There's no such thing as chance in God's world. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap. It's every decision is from the Lord. 
expand your view of God if it's not big enough over a couple of dice, right? God is sovereign over every part and every detail of his world, bringing about his wonderful plans. And it was his plan that Jonah would be outed to the sailors. And so look at verse 9. Jonah speaks for the first time. So far, we haven't got much to think about what he's going to say. But take a look. Jonah answered, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Key verse for the chapter. Jonah does something unexpected, but for a different reason this time. He speaks with clarity and conviction. I am from the nation of Israel. I worship the Lord. Now notice the the word Lord there is capitalised. That's a way of our English Bibles telling us that the original Hebrew had God's personal name, not just Lord, but Yahweh from Exodus 3. But who is this Yahweh? Jonah says, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. And so there's two things about God that we learn from Jonah's word here. The first is this, God is the creator and ruler over all things. Jonah's God, Yahweh, he's unique among all the other so-called gods because he's entirely other than them all, other from Jonah, other from the seas and sailors because he created Jonah, created the seas, created the sailors, created even the spiritual forces. He made the sea and the dry land, which means he isn't just one among many gods. These other spiritual forces, these so-called gods, they themselves owe their being to this God, the Creator. They owe their existence to Him. That's the first thing. The second thing, God is the judge of all wickedness. God is the God of heaven. He is high above us, holy. He's entirely other, uncreated, holy. Verse 2, even the wickedness of the far-off and great nation of Assyria, powerful though they are, comes up to Him. He isn't just the God of Israel, but of Assyria. Not just of one nation, but of his entire world and everyone in it. Now, what does that mean for the sailors? What does it mean for the sailors? In the midst of a raging storm, are these comforting words for them to hear? Have a look at how they respond in verse 10. This terrified them. This terrified them. When the storm threatened to break up the ship, we're told that they're afraid, afraid of the storm, afraid of their gods. But when Jonah introduces them to Yahweh, the Lord, they are terrified. Why? We thought we're just dealing with this God, that God. We could maybe sail past where that God could reach us. But you told us about the Lord, the God of heaven, the creator of heaven and earth and the land, the one who rules all things. And in their terrible fear, they continue to try to do everything they can to save themselves. Uh, Let's lighten the load, let's try and row back to shore, anything but throwing one of God's people into the water, as Jonah suggests. But they run out of options and eventually Jonah gets his way, he's thrown overboard and just as he prophesied, verse 15, the end of it, the raging sea grew calm. Relief. You'd think so, wouldn't you? But no. Have a look at verse 16. At this, the calm sea, at this, the men greatly feared the Lord. 
That's a strange response, isn't it? When you're caught in this storm and it becomes calm, you greatly fear at that point. Why do you think the calm is greater cause for fear than the raging seas? They had heard Job's, uh, Jonah's words about Yahweh and they were terrified. These sailors have been introduced to this God whose power is far beyond they, what they possibly could have imagined. The seas rage around, they take this Hebrew man, they throw him aboard and immediately the sea goes calm. And what does that do for them? It confirms their worst nightmare. They know for sure that this God that terrifies them is watching them. His eye is on them. He is looking intently at every action they perform and immediately responding. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord. In the ESV, the men feared the Lord exceedingly. Now, what does all that mean for us? There's a lot of fear developing in these sailors. Do you fear God? If you were to ask someone down the street, down the beach, do you fear God? What do you expect they might say? A bit confused at first, but do they fear Him? No. Why would they? Because they don't think God has anything to do with them. If you don't fear God here tonight, you won't do anything about anything you hear because you won't think God's worth your worry. But let me tell you about this God. We've seen that He is the creator of all things, therefore He owns the world. He owns everything in it, including you. Everything in the world, including you, owes its existence to this God, the creator. And yet we all, you included, me included, all the time, just reject him, turn from him, treat him with utter content. We've also seen that this God is up, up here, the God of heaven, which means he's holy. He's not just greater than me, more powerful than me, but he's completely beyond me. The very sight of him in his holiness would kill me. But here's the most terrifying part of all. This God is deeply concerned with every thought and every action we perform. Nothing in all of creation escapes his gaze. Remember verse 2, even the wickedness of the Ninevites reaches him, comes up before him. This God isn't just the God of Christians, he's everyone's God, he's everyone's creator, whether they like it or not, whether they acknowledge it or not. And there's a day, we're told, that he's chosen when he will come and he will judge all of the wickedness of the world and destroy anyone who stands against him. Are you afraid? You ought to be. God's holiness paired with his concern for our world and everything that goes on in it ought to elicit a fear in us. It ought to humble us to seek forgiveness from him. It ought to lead us to repentance, saying sorry to God, turning from our rebellion. It ought to lead us to praise. Let me show you an example of this kind of response in Jonah by looking at the sailors again. We're going to come back to them. Have a look at verse 14. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, notice the capitals again. They're talking to God by his personal name. Do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Verse 16, At this the men greatly feared the Lord 
and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Now, they've only just met this God and their fear drives them to their knees in repentance. They do a full 180 degree turn, repentance. They go from each worshipping their own God to worship the one true God, Yahweh, making vows to him. The sailors' response is extremely wise. They let the news of the reality of the God of the universe turn their world upside down and back to front. Friends, wisdom, we just saw this last week, wisdom is living rightly uh, according to your reality, your, your circumstances. And there is no greater reality, no greater circumstance to our lives than the fact that God is your creator and your judge. There is no greater reality than that. The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. Let the news of, of the reality of God being your creator and your judge turn your world upside down and back to front. Repent, just as the sailors did. Come to God, make a vow to Him to trust Him and follow Him. And friends, let me assure you, as you consider doing that, that there is no one too far off to turn to God and seek repentance. These sailors, these pagans, these, these polytheists, these men with their plethora of gods who participate probably in child sacrifice and in prostitution to their gods, the Hebrews, the Israelites would have hated any, any of these guys. How much more then would their wickedness stink to God himself? But all that matters to God is that they heard about him and responded. Heard about him and responded. The implication of Jonah's words to them is that this God is their God also and that they respond in faith. They repent. And so, how will you respond to this God? You've heard of him. How will you respond? With the wisdom of these sailors or with the foolishness of God's prophet? Now, don't be like Jonah. Don't be a fool trying to run and hide from God. That's, that's a fool's errand. Jonah should have got up and obeyed the captain. Get up, call on your God. That's what he should have done. But look what he does instead. Verse 12. Pick me up and throw me into the sea. How stubborn is God's prophet here? He should have cried out to God for salvation. But he'd rather get himself thrown overboard to die than to repent and come to God. We shouldn't mistake that as an act of heroism on his part. It's an act of cowardice, stubborn-heartedness, foolishness. In fact, Jonah's words in verse 9, these impressive words, they're tragically ironic. I don't know if you picked that up. Um, because they reveal his stupidity. The sailors get it. They're like, what are you thinking? Almost like they say, you just told us that God's the God of heaven. We already know you're trying to run away. What's the go? Look what you've done. You've, you've brought this upon us. You've brought this upon yourself, you fool. And it seems obvious, doesn't it, as we read? It seems obvious. Of course. How futile. How foolish could you be? But are you a fool? Here tonight, it's easy to look at the actions of this man, see the foolishness of what he's doing, the futility of what he's doing. But how many of us do the exact same thing every day, every week? Now, if you're here tonight and, and you're not a Christian, you're not someone who knows this God, you're not someone who 
follows and trusts Jesus. It's so good that you're here. Uh, it is great to consider the things of Jesus. We have people here every week uh, checking out the Bible, checking out Jesus, what these things have to say. But this causes us to ask, what are you doing? Where are you going? There's two directions you can move in this life, one away from God and one toward God. If you haven't given much thought to him, if you don't know his son Jesus, uh, don't think yourself near to God. You've wandered far. You've run away. Come back to God. It's desperately important for you to realise because when we run from this God, when we run from our Creator, we run from the giver of life. We run from life itself and there's only death. And we see this in Jonah's journey downward. The further down he goes, the more and more his situation stinks of death. It doesn't just stop in the hull of the ship, eventually he is thrown overboard and he sinks down in the depths of the sea. Have a look at chapter 2, verse 2, the second half. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help. Verse 3, you hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas and the currents swirled about me. Verse 5, the engulfing waters threatened me, the deep surrounded me, seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains, I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. Jonah sinks down to his death, almost like into death itself. That's all that's left when you flee the God who gives life. It seems so obvious, doesn't it? Do you still think that this God isn't worth fearing? Do you hope to find a life apart from him? You can't. It's impossible. It's a fool's errand. And now, Christian, follower of Jesus, I'm talking to you. What are the ways in which you and I try to run from this God and make fools of ourselves? Are there decisions you, you try to make without the counsel of God's word? Hide this part of your life. Hide this decision away. Are there parts of your life that you seek to hide from God's people and so hope to hide from God himself as well? Is there a street without a speed camera where you can let loose and hope it's in secrecy? Are there chains of gossip and lies which are so long and so crafty and intricate that you hope to hide the guilt of your involvement even from God? Is there a group of non-church friends that you like to hang out with because you can really let loose with them, get drunk with or dabble in sexual immorality? Is there a dice you roll or a button you press on a pokey in a dark, smoky room somewhere, hopefully hidden from the presence of God? Is there a destination overseas where you hope to be so far from God's people that it feels like you're far from his presence and you can sin without consequence? Or closer to home, is there a special room where you go to sin in private where you hope the eyes of your God cannot see? Is there a special browser or an app or an alias or a file location on your phone which you think is beyond his searching? 
All of these are foolish attempts to hide from the God who is the God of heaven above. All-powerful, all-present, all-knowing, and the stench of all of the wickedness of the world reaches his nostrils. Friends, repent. Sin is like seaweed. It wraps around our heads and pulls us down into death. There was a uh, story of a man a few years ago from California, a scuba diver, uh, who became entangled in kelp, a certain kind of seaweed, eight metres under the water. Scuba diver, we're there. He panicked and struggled, which caused him to be tangled more and more tightly until the point where he lost his regulator. He drowned. Sin is like seaweed. It is the snare of death, always looking to grab a hold and pull you down. Friends, don't be like Jonah. Don't be like Jonah who thinks you can hide from your God. Wake up, stop sleeping, get up, call on your God. Repent and ask for forgiveness. Do you fear God? If not, you won't do anything about anything we've heard so far tonight, uh, and you'll be like Jonah, destined for that death. But if you do fear this God, that's the place to be. Let your fear drive you towards him for eternal life and not away. Fear is the wise response to God, a God of this magnitude. It leads us to humble to repentance. But we may find it difficult when we dwell on these things to, for that to lead us to praise, praise of this God. So let me show you how fear and judgment actually point us to the main point of Jonah, that you may remember that God is a God of grace and loves to show mercy to the undeserving. Now, who's the least deserving to be shown grace and mercy in this story so far? Is it the sailors? We've already seen how far off from God they are, as far as you could possibly imagine. But God loves to show mercy, doesn't it? He gives a word through his prophet Jonah. They respond, and no doubt he accepts their response. What about Nineveh? Their wickedness is as great as they are a city. How does God respond? By sending a prophet to preach against them, to to speak judgment against them. You, You might go, hang on, that doesn't sound like a God who loves to show grace and mercy. But not so fast, because if it was God's plan to destroy Nineveh for their wickedness, why send a prophet to preach? Why do that? Why not just destroy them? Here's the counterintuitive little gem I'd like you to see. God's judgment is an instrument of his grace. I'll say it again. God's judgment is an instrument of his grace. Think about the raging seas, that judgment. What effect did that judgment have? It cast fear in the sailors' hearts, turned them back to God. So what effect might preaching to Nineveh have to the Ninevites? A right fear of God that they might turn to God and be saved. That's exactly what happens, and we'll come to see more of that next week. So why did Jonah run away? We aren't told everything in chapter 1, interestingly. Um, We're told that he fleed the Lord, which is true. But come look at... Chapter 4, verse 2. This is Jonah speaking. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Jonah knows better than all of us that God is gracious and loves to show mercy. That is 
is why he wasn't licking his lips at the chance to go to Nineveh, preach against it, because he knew that if they turned to God, God would have accepted them, because he loves to show grace and mercy. He didn't want to risk their salvation. Jonah. And what does that mean for us? Grace and mercy doesn't always sound like you think it should. Essential to the gospel is a message of judgment. Why? To bring people to repentance so they might be saved. It's still called good news because to those who respond to it, salvation is right there. God loves to show mercy. And that's why Reformed Evangelicals are so often misunderstood. EV Church, that's who we are. We're always banging on about sin. It's such a downer. Stop it. Why? Because it brings us to our knees before God again and again. And that's what we need. So what effect will this message of God's judgment have on you? Let me return to our question. Who's the least deserving of God's grace in this story? That's Jonah. What a horrible character. He's terrible. So self-absorbed, selfish, rebellious, inconsiderate, racist, xenophobic, I think is the fancy word for that. Jonah not only runs from God, but refuses to turn back to God again and again. And instead of repenting, he tries to take matters into his own hand. He's like, throw me over, kill me. I'd rather do this, but God had other plans. Have a look at verse 17. Kind of looks like it's in chapter 2. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days, three nights. God provides a fish to swallow Jonah. So Jonah doesn't die right there and then. He doesn't drown. He's given one last opportunity to repent, and he does. Chapter 2, verse 2. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From Deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help and you listened to my cry. Verse 8, those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. Song is a sacrifice. What I vowed, I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. Jonah has learned his lesson. It took a life-threatening experience and three days in the belly of a fish, to get there. But he finally is brought to his knees in the belly of the fish, probably crampled up, right? Dying. And God hears his prayer and saves him. Why? Because God is a God of grace and he loves to show mercy to the undeserving. Our God is so on about grace that he would tirelessly pursue his wayward prophet to bring him back, bring him back, and more than this, to bring him back for the sake of going to this wicked nation, Assyria, and this capital city, Nineveh. He saves Jonah out of the storm for the sake of their salvation. That's amazing. It really is. Such is the character of our God. Do you know this God? Do you love this God? Do you praise this God? He's wonderful and absolutely praiseworthy. But there's a final piece we need to see here tonight. And that's, there's a greater salvation from our Lord Jesus in the sign of Jonah. So come to Matthew 12 that was read before, down to the subtitle that my Bible has, the sign of Jonah, conveniently. I'll pick it up from verse 39. He, that's Jesus, answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asked for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. 
For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus' claim here is that the story of Jonah is really about him. The salvation that God brought to Jonah and through Jonah was to point to Jesus, that he's greater than this famous prophet. You see, like Jonah, Jesus was sent by God to preach to a wicked world. But unlike Jonah, Jesus didn't run away from this mission. He was willingly sent. Jesus didn't try to run away to the furthest part of the world. He came from heaven to earth to save sinners. Like Jonah, Jesus slept on a boat in the midst of a life-threatening storm. Do you remember? But his sleep wasn't a sign of his lack of care for those around him and his running away from God. It was his deep trust in his father's ability to preserve his life on this mission. Like Jonah, Jesus offered up his life to save others. But unlike Jonah, it wasn't an act of cowardliness and stubborn rebellion. But instead, Jesus resolutely sets his face to the cross to go to the cross in complete obedience to the Father's plan for salvation, the mission to save the world. In Jonah, the rage of God's judgment in the storm was as a result of Jonah's rebellion. It's his fault, he says. But the rage of God's wrath on Jesus' cross was not because of Jesus' sin. He was completely righteous. He, he took on the punishments of the sin of the world, our sin. Our sin was nailed to the cross. Like Jonah, Jesus was swallowed up into death, like he says, in the heart of the earth, three days, three nights. But unlike Jonah, this was not a near-death experience to bring about Jonah's repentance. This was death, real death, really died to pay this for the sins of the world so that we could repent and be saved. Like Jonah, Jesus was brought up from his deathly abode, but instead of being vomited out into dry land, he was triumphantly risen, resurrected into a glorious and new life. Jonah was resurrected in a sense. He repented, a new man with a new mission, vomited up, but only to fail again. Jesus was resurrected at the completion of his mission, the defeat of sin and death, never to die again. Here's the gospel. Our God in Jesus Christ entered into our wicked world and went all the way down, 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 down to the deepest depths of death under the wrath of God to pull us up out of death so that you and I would no longer have to face the judgment for our sins. Instead, his death could be our death if we would humbly repent. And if his death is our death, his resurrection will be our resurrection too. Hallelujah. Let me pray and we'll sing. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the salvation that you've given us in Jesus. We thank you for the sign of Jonah that you're goodness uh, to him, though he didn't deserve it, and your goodness to the nation of Assyria and to Nineveh and to the sailors just shows us so much that you are a God of grace and mercy to those who do not deserve it. We know we don't deserve your grace and mercy, 
And so we thank you so much for this gospel, that you would save us in your son, Jesus. We pray that you would help us to rely on him, trust you, that we would be brought to our knees in repentance uh, every day. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.